This episode, Justice League number three, cover dated July 1987. And welcome to the third episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, I'll feature a different guest host. Today, my co-host is the webmaster and scarab supreme of the Court Industries blog. Folks, please help me welcome to the embassy, Mr. Tim Wallace. Welcome to the embassy, Tim. Thanks for being here. How you doing, bud? I, I am doing great, Shag. I, I see you got the check in the mail. Yes, because because I, I figured since I have been missed on so many of your world tours, <laughs> that that this was the only way I, I was going to actually conversate with you in, in any sort of recorded fashion. What Tim's referring to <laughs> is I I travel a lot for work, and this past year I visited some twenty two different nations' capitals, and uh, I made sure that I avoided every state that Tim is even remotely near. <laughs> Because I, I just couldn't risk that. But your check did clear. Congratulations, which allowed Yay. you to be on the third episode. Now, folks, I mentioned in the opening, Tim is, in fact, the head honcho over at the Cord Industry blog, a blog dedicated to Blue Beetle. But that's not all. No, no. Tim has got his fingers all over the interwebs. In fact, for those of you who don't know, besides doing this podcast, I also run a blog based on Firestorm called Firestorm Fan. And Tim was actually the very first correspondent we ever brought on board. And you covered. What did you cover for us, Tim? I covered all of Future's End. And if anyone listening read along, I, I hope, in the words of Father Guido Sarducci, I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it to you. <laughs> hey, well, I appreciate you reading Future's End so that I didn't have to. <laughs> it, it wasn't all bad. It was yeah, like 50-50. There was a female firefighter. That was pretty cool. So. There was. She was hot. <laughs> then, Tim, you also are involved with a blog based on the Phantom. Is this correct? I am. That's, that's a, It's a fairly new blog. I think I launched back in uh, January, but it is the Phantom Skull Cave, and I've been just touching different parts of the Phantom. As bad that as that really sounds. That really dirty. <laughs> yes, no, let me clarify. I was originally thinking I was going to go through and, and sort of chronologically go through, starting with like the gold key and King features I and mean, work my way through. But uh, about two two issues in, decided, you know what? I'm just going to kind of bounce around. So I've, uh, I've talked about Defenders of the Earth. Um, oh, Defenders of the Earth. Da, da, right. Da, da. <laughs> exactly. Def- Defenders of the Earth, the, uh, the Gold Key, the Charlton. I think I actually have on tap to cover some of the Moonstone Phantom books. So, yeah, I'm, I'm touching the Phantom in every way possible. Oh, <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> Tim is also a member of a group that is near and dear to my heart, the Legion of Super Bloggers. Love those yes. guys. Headed up by yeah. Little Russell Burbage. Little, where, where is he from again? It varies from day to day. <laughs> I think this month he's from Baila. Ba- Baila? Is that how you say it? Bialga? Yeah, but, we'll go with yeah. that pronunciation. I'm <laughs> terrible at pronouncing words. Well, sir, you know, before we get going, actually, you know what? We need to take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we'll select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library, and usually it'll be tied into that month's issue of JLI in some sort of way. This 
this episode I picked out in uh, honor of our guest, Showcase Presents Blue Beetle Trade Paperback. So this collects the entire 1980s Blue Beetle run, 1 through 24. Writers Len Wein and Joey Cavallari, arted by the amazing Paris Collins. Love that. It is 584 pages. 584 pages. That's insane. It's black and white. Normally retails for $19.99. Right now you can get it on in-stock trades for 42% off, and that is only $11.59 for the entire Blue Beetle saga. That is unbelievable. Now, normally I, I wouldn't expect my guest to have a pick, but Tim, as I understand it, you brought one. Is this correct? I, I did. I did. I, I actually had a couple different ones in mind, but through the, through the, you know, narrowing it down a little bit, I, I went with something that's a little out there, but, but follow me here, okay? Okay, I'm with you. All, All right. right. So, so, I went with a Marvel book, and I usually don't go Marvel. I'm, you know, I'm, you know I'm this much is more a DC, you know this is a DC podcast, right, buddy? I am, I am absolutely a dyed in the wool DC fan, but, but hear me out. Thunderbolts Volume Four: No Mercy, uh, ri- <laughs> written by written by Charles Sewell, artist Carlo Barbieri, and Paco Diaz Luque. 160 pages in color. So if you like dysfunctional superhero teams, like the Justice League International, ah, uh huh, uh huh. Okay. I think think about this: Red Hulk, Elektra, Punisher, Ghost Rider, and that media darling Deadpool. <laughs> Literally going to hell to face off with Mephisto. Oh my gosh. How could you go wrong? That does sound like a lot of fun. Exactly. So it was nineteen ninety nine, but you save forty five percent, and it's only ten ninety nine. Okay. You can't go wrong. Now, have you read this personally? I actually have. It's, okay. It's one of the few Marvel books that I actually did collect, and it, and part of it was the humor, the the interplay between the the dysfunctional team. It was actually a really fun read. I have to say, I haven't read that particular one, but I've read I've read a lot of Thunderbolts. I loved the original Busick Thunderbolts. Which was, you know, the, the Masters of Evil, I think it was. Right. In disguise. That was a fantastic run. And then I read the, I guess it was Warren Ellis, who did the new Thunderbolts, if I remember right? I think so. That's when he brought in, like, the mainstream Marvel villains and stuff, made it sort of a Suicide Squad team. It's, you're right. It's a, it's a fun series with a lot of neat ideas. That particular one sounds like a lot of fun. So. It, it really is. I recommend it. Definitely a dysfunctional team, though. Yeah, I can see that. I can see where the connection is now. Well, folks, for this and your, all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. So now with uh, the business of the day out of the way, let's get to the fun. Sir, you are on the JLI podcast, and I need to know from you, what is your own personal origin story? How did you discover the book, and uh, what made you actually fall in love with it? Uh, I started collecting comics right after Crisis. And that was, a, in large part, my, my mom and my grandmother were very supportive of, of my habits as a kid or my, my interests as a kid. Um, and one Christmas I got from, I think it was a Sears catalog, the Comic Collector Starter Kit. Oh, I've heard of this legendary thing. So it, it, was, a, it was a nice long box that was decorated on the outside with, with generic panel art. Inside was uh, reproductions of uh, Fantastic Four number one, Captain America number one, Spider-Man number one, and Hulk number one, along with a very thin magazine size price guide, like 25 bags and 25 boards. It was really, really basic starter. So I immediately took the money I had gotten from Christmas and begged my mom to take me to a comic store. Okay. That sounds like an awesome starter kit, by the way. That sounds really it, cool. It it really was. And I actually, up until very recently, still had that box. Oh, cool. But it kind of got damaged in a, in a flood at my apartment oh. a few years ago. and. 
had to had to give it up. But I got I got my mom to take me to the comic store, Jeppy's Comic World. So Steve Jeppy, who runs Diamond Comics, yeah, I know. Used used to have a whole chain of uh of Jeppy's Comic World stores, all, like all around Maryland and DC. Mm-hmm. I think I think Northern Virginia. So we went to uh, went to one of those, and uh, so I, I got the last few issues of Crisis. Crisis led me right into Who's Who and Secret Origins. And hey. Secret Origins <laughs> Secret Origins number two was Blue Beetle. Nice. Good choices and too, sir. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. And and I've, I mentioned this, uh, I think, on Ryan Daly's Secret Origins. Oh, we don't, um, we don't talk about him here, by the I'm way. Not, sorry. not after his first appearance on the first episode of this series. It's, Ooh. Uh, his name, no go. But okay. Go ahead, finish your story. So, so I've also mentioned it on my own blog, Court Industries. That uh, that blue that Secret Origins number two with Blue Beetle really sold me on Blue Beetle. I'm a kid that's brand new to comic books, and number issue number one was Superman, and issue number two is Blue Beetle, and I I went into this thinking this guy is a big deal. He's he's the guy they cho- <laughs> he's the guy they chose to follow Superman, not Batman. They went with Blue Beetle. And it had the the big headline because you demanded it, right? So so I picked that up and uh, actually right away fell in love with the look of the character. A, a month later was Blue Beetle number one, um, so I was hooked on Blue Beetle. And as soon as I found out that Blue Beetle was starring in this brand new Justice League book, mm-hmm. like that that was the selling point. I could care less about you know Doctor Fate and Batman and uh, Captain Marvel. No, no, Blue Beetle was the star, and and from that point on, I was in. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a great story. You know, there's something about the Ted Cord Beetle, especially when you get like Paris Collins drawing him or who, who did Paris draw the, the Secret Origins issue as well? I don't recall. No, actually the Secret Origins was, uh, was Gil Kane. Oh, jeez. Okay. So you get Gil Kane and then Paris Collins drawing Blue Beetle. That costume is so engaging. There's something about that costume and maybe it was just the eighties. Maybe it was just the aesthetic at the time, but I always thought he had the coolest look, you know, and, and maybe it is the Dick West sort of like he looks kind of like Spider-Man but isn't quite Spider-Man look. Maybe that's what it is. But he just looks so engaging, and I couldn't help but get wrapped up in the character, even though I wasn't reading his book right away, and I wasn't reading Justice League, I still always found the Blue Beetle character captivating. Oh, I've, I have loved him uh, from the moment I laid eyes on him. In a in a completely heterosexual. I was going to say, you know, now that I look at it, it looks a little <laughs> bit like the Phantom, and you're talking about loving and touching. I'm just saying, I'm a little worried about it right now. <laughs> no, but actually, that's a good point. There is some similarities there. There are guys, and and I guess in a lot of ways, like Batman too. It's a it's the normal guy. It's it's something you, as the reader, can reasonably believe that you could one day be this hero. Yeah. You're you're not gonna you're not gonna you know suddenly find out you were born on Krypton, but you could certainly train yourself to peak physical condition, become some kind of scientist, <laughs> build your own <laughs> gadgets, start fighting crime. Well, and if you look at uh, like his look with the cowl, I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking at a big tower of Justice League action figures here in my in my office, <laughs> and other than like Blue Beetle with the cowl with the open exposed mouths area, I mean, Blue Beetle, Batman, and the Atom are really the only people that kind of have that look. Yeah. So it is sort of unique, but the Phantom has it too. Yes, he does. So maybe there's a thing. Maybe you have a thing for guys like that. That could be it. <laughs> So, who is your favorite JLI characters? And please try to narrow it down to just one, somewhere between one to three. Don't get ridiculous here. Um, okay, that's easy. It's going to be Blue Beetle. Okay. Booster Gold. Ah, fair enough. 
and Blue Beetle. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, B- Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, and Guy Gardner. Oh, geez. Okay. Because because without that antagonist character, right? I don't I don't know that all of the humor between the two buddies would work if they didn't have Guy to play off of. Guy is a wonderful foil in the book. There's no doubt about that. He's, Absolutely. It's so much fun rereading these comics because, like, the nice thing is, by the way, being the host, I've never had to answer that question myself. And because honestly, my favorite character changes depending on the issue I'm reading. So <laughs> it's a uh, you make a good point. Those times, like this issue we're about to cover, Guy Gardner is friggin' hysterical. <laughs> Everything he does is just hilarious. All right. Well, I think without any further ado, we're going to move on to our next segment. Let's go to Monitor Duty. And this is where we talk about comic books that are on the shelves the same month this issue was published, featuring other Justice League International members. So, Justice League International number three. Why? Well, I see. It's not even Justice League International number three. I got the title of the book wrong. Look at that. It gets so confusing after a while. Justice League number three. Not international yet. Justice League number three was on the shelves April 2nd, 1987. Now, if we look at Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which is, by the way, an amazing website, to see what other comics were on the shelves in April 1987. Uh, let's see. I'll start off. I'll cover the Batman books. Batman number 409. This is featuring the, the Ma Fagun storyline where Jason Todd is, goes to her orphanage. And at the end of this issue is where Jason Todd gets offered the opportunity to become Robin. Now, this is the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd as opposed to the other one. Yeah, that's uh, – it's you know, looking back at, at collecting comics, I always went through phases where it was Superman books or Batman books. But every time it was a Batman book, it was either Batman or Detective. And at this point, I was actually reading Detective. I wasn't touching Batman at all. How funny. Really? <laughs> and somehow I keep saying touching. <laughs> you do. You have a thing there. Now, for me, I didn't go through my Batman phase until 1989 when you know everyone went through Batmania. And by the way, I've said this on other shows, but I do firmly believe everyone goes through a Batman phase where you love Batman and eventually you sort of grow out of it. It's not that you dislike Batman, but you're not a bat. You're not in Batmania anymore. So think back on your own personal history, folks. I'm willing to bet you found there at some point in your life where you were going through a Batman phase. Anyway, it's sort of like college. You experiment. <laughs> anyway, then uh, Detective Comics number 576 was also on the shelves, which is part two of Batman Year Two. So Mike W. Barr continues to write the book. But this issue, Alan Davis is gone, and Todd McFarlane has taken over. Yeah, you know what? I, I haven't read this in years. The issues are tucked away and, mm-hmm. and bagged and boarded somewhere. But I remember just thinking the Reaper was one of the coolest characters my young eyes had ever seen, even, even if McFarlane was no Alan Davis. And see, I totally agree with you. I, now, I, haven't, I also haven't read Year Two, probably since it first came out. But I also thought the Reaper was awesome. Me and Rob Kelly do another podcast called Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, where we cover the Who's Who comic. And the Reaper came up recently, and I was stunned at the so much negativity towards the Reaper. I mean, there were tons of people who came out very opposed to him. I'm glad to hear there's someone else in the world besides me that likes him. Wait, I do. You're on the short list. Good man. Yay. <laughs> oh, wait. Short short list or short bus? Well, maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to mention it, but... Um, finally, uh, the final Batman book on the shelf. Yes, there was only two Batman books in an annual that month, which is crazy to think of nowadays. But Batman Annual number 11, which I've never read this. However, it's pretty... It's pedigree. It's pretty amazing. It's got a penguin story in there. Uh, by Max Allen Collins and Norm Brayfogle. And if I understood Michael Bailey right last episode, I think this is Norm Brayfogle's first Batman story. Awesome. And then the other story is a clay-faced tale drawn by George Freeman and written by, oh, that's right, a guy by name of Alan Moore. That's got to be an amazing comic. You know what? It's actually one I wouldn't mind tracking down just looking at that. Mm-hmm. But but again, I was reading Detective and not, not Batman at this point. <laughs> 
So, so I missed out. I missed out on something that actually looks pretty cool. So now, did, now I have to ask you, and I'm jumping forward, and this is off the rate. This is off the total topic altogether. But I just this is my Batman phase. Now, for me, my Batman phase was Alan Grant writing. This is Detective Comics. Alan Grant writing and Norm Brayfogle drawing. Now, did you Absolutely. read those detectives? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. Good man. It's it's been a while since I picked those books up and and reread them. But wasn't there a point within that where uh, Brayfogle switched over? Was it switched over to Batman and Jim Aparo came over to Detective Two? Or am I thinking about that in reverse? Well, I I seem to recall Brayfogle did switch to Batman. I don't know if Aparo moved to Detective at that point though. I'm not sure. Okay. I don't recall. There was also the Shadow of the Bat was in there somewhere too. Right. So right. It starts to get a little hazy. I just remember I I fell in love with those Brayfogle Detective issues. Oh, so good. Well, you want to take the next comic? Oh, absolutely. Blue Beetle number 14 Woo-hoo! with the Teen Titans. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you sounded so excited about that. Um, in those early days of collecting, I, I, Teen Titans was a big thing, and I tried reading it for a while, and it never grabbed me the way it grabbed some people. Always with the touching you. <laughs> when I when I recently covered these issues, it, the, the Titans appeared in three issues of Blue Beetle. It was 12, 13, and 14. Luckily, 14, they were only in for about three pages mm. uh, because I just wanted to finish it and, and move on. Okay. Like it was it was some of the it was some of my least favorite Blue Beetle action mm. because because I felt like there was too much focus on the Titans within that storyline. So luckily they're only there for three pages, and then Ted follows his uh, recurring foil, uh, Lieutenant Fisher, over to Pago Island, finds his Uncle Jarvis's old lab where Dan Garrett's rival archaeologist Conrad Carapax has been uh, sniffing around and suddenly found himself trapped in a robot body. So all hell breaks loose, and it's awesome again because the Titans were only there for three pages. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I've read all the Blue Beetle run. I do recall, and I hate to say this, but and I read them in one chunk. I, I sat down and read the whole thing at once. I do remember not loving the Pago Island stuff. Maybe I'm in the wrong here, but it's, I don't remember the like. I seem to remember reading the Pago Island, being like, "Come on, let's just get past this." Uh, I'll give you a pass. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I won't. I won't hound on you too hard. I understand. <laughs> I appreciate that, sir. Thank you very much. Okay, next one is one of my personal favorites, but it's a little divisive amongst some fans. It's Doctor Fate number one by J.M. DeMatteis and Keith Giffen. Those names may sound familiar to you if you're listening to this podcast. This is the issue that introduces Eric and Linda Strauss and takes out Ken Nelson. And the weirdest thing about this is the timing on this book. So this book, Dr. Fate number one, comes out the same month as Justice League number three, right? However, the story itself doesn't actually take place until after Justice League International number seven. So if you're reading Justice League number three on the shelves in, in this run, at the same time as the Dr. Fate miniseries, you'd be totally scratching your head because the Dr. Fate in the Justice League miniseries is not the Dr. Fate that appears in the Justice League book when he does bother to show up. I guess I'm part of that divisive side. I love Dr. Fate as a character, but Giffen's art on this book always kind of put me off just a little bit. It's out there, no doubt about it. I did buy this when it came out. I bought it was it was a four issue series. Yep. Right? Yep. And I have I have all four issues bagged and boarded in a box. <laughs> it's one of those ones I actually, honestly, I've always kind of had in the back of my head like I should go back and reread those. But I just remember at the time, like going, "Wow, that looks completely different than the Doctor Fate in Justice League." So, <laughs> so it kind of threw me. Well, you get Kevin McGuire's clean lines and his awesome perspectives, and Doctor Fate looks great in his Kevin McGuire stuff. And then you look at the Giffen stuff, and it is definitely different, no doubt yeah. about that. I can see the the reconciliation again. I'm I got lucky where I came to Justice League late, so the Doctor Fate book for me was just like, "Whoa, this is great." 
another book on the shelf, Shazam, The New Beginning, number four. That rounds out that miniseries, and we've talked about that the last couple of episodes. Uh, Roy and Dinah Thomas and Tom Mandrake. Now, touching on future members of the Justice League. Now you're touching. I am. Look at that. <laughs> and this first one, technically, at the start of this issue, he is a future member. By the end of the issue, maybe something different. Booster Gold, number 18, where Booster is on the run from a 20th, 5th century lawman. Yeah, you know, I've, I've never read any of those Booster solo adventures from the 80s. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved the character in Justice League. I loved the friendship with Blue Beetle. I loved his look. But for whatever reason, it, and it might have been my budget at the time, I, I never actually bought that book. Well now, I've, I've had in my head that I need to track down the, uh, the showcase volume. And what was it, like the early 2000s when Booster got his solo book? Mm -hmm. I have every issue of that. I read every issue of that, and I loved it. But, yeah, this 80s Booster run, I never picked up. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Showcase Edition, because I was about to say, you can get the entire (laughs) thing in one book, in that Showcase book. And it's Dan Jurgens. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah, What's keeping you from pulling the trigger, sir? Um... Yes. Hey, hey look, Captain Adam number five is next. It is Captain Adam number five <laughs> next. And you know what? I get distracted by that one because it features Firestorm, the nuclear man. That is a great issue. Pat Broderick is drawing Captain Adam at this point, and you get Firestorm versus Captain Adam. It is glorious. And uh, actually, I'm going to help the guys over at the Silver and Gold podcast cover this issue in the not-too-distant future, or given that we're recording this two months in the future or in the past, it might be have already happened. I don't know. Something along those lines. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Exactly. Oh, hey, nice, nice, <laughs> nice call there. Finally wrapping out, it's Hawkman number 12. This is apparently where, <laughs> I have not read this. Uh, this is, <laughs> I'm so mean to Hawkman. This is apparently the official end and conclusion of the Shadow War, which took a four-issue miniseries and apparently 12 issues of his own book to take care of. So, that's that. Now, I realize as we do this, the Monitor Duty segment, I, when I first introduced it or planned for it, was always intended to be like a really brief, this is what the, on the shelves, but it's actually become like one of my favorite segments because it's so much fun <laughs> To walk down memory lane and talk about some of these old books. I really, glad, I really enjoy doing that. So thank you it, for. It really is. I, I wouldn't mind going back and, and pulling a couple of these or even tracking down those Batman books that I, that I never bought at the time or, or Booster Gold for that matter. There you go. Whoops. <laughs> there is one more book on the list. <laughs> and it's, it's only tangentially related, but it's worth mentioning. Watchmen number 10. So you can't ignore the Charlton characters translation that's in Watchmen without, and when you look at the Justice League. So, I mean, Nighthawk, right? No, Night Owl. I'm sorry. Night Owl. Night Owl. And Birds of a feather. Tell you what, why don't we take a quick break? We're going to play a podcast promo or two, play some commercials for some of our friends. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to recap Justice League number three. It's time for some thrilling heroics, a brand new podcast on twotruefreaks.com. Keep flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to do the impossible, cover every episode of Joss Whedon's science fiction space opera western, and that makes us mighty. We've found as fine a crew as ever populated the podcasting verse. I told them I had a job, they said yes. Didn't much care what it was. So join me, Andrew Leyland. I fought for the independence. May have been the losing side, not so sure it was the wrong one. I'm joined by a man too pretty to die, Mr. Paul Spataro. And last, but by no means least, a man with a mighty fine hat, Shepard Bill Robinson. So join us on TutuFreaks.com for Keep Flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to misbehave. And we're 
we're back. Now, in a moment, we're going to do the recap. But first, I started thinking during the break. I was like, you know what? I meant to ask Tim something. Because earlier, we were talking about your favorite characters, right? And you yes. mentioned, uh, if I remember right, Blue Beetle, right? Yes. Booster Gold, right? Correct. And Guy Gardner. Now, yep. it occurred to me that you must have accidentally left off your favorite character. Because certainly your favorite character in the Justice League has to be Oberon, right? <laughs> because Oberon's background was as a circus performer. <laughs> now, Tim, wouldn't wouldn't that make Oberon your favorite character? Oberon, absolutely. He should be one of my favorite characters. If if not my favorite character. You're absolutely right. And, and I, why I, would that be, Tim? <laughs> Because I almost ran away and joined the circus. <laughs> the funny part is, folks, he's not kidding. I am not. I am very serious. I've taken <laughs> I've taken classes in magic and clowning um, in in high school. I couldn't tell you that. <laughs> in high school, I was a member of the juggling club. I have attempted to self-teach myself with, with mixed success several sideshow acts like uh like the human eating. fire eating is one of them no, um I've, i don't know if i've ever actually seen a picture of you do you still have your hair and your eyebrows i do okay. i do but i also haven't been practicing that routine recently um <laughs> i've done a little bit of the human blockhead uh where you take like a six inch nail and pound it into your nose um, and in college Touring our campus was the uh, the Royal Liechtenstein Circus, and uh, they are <laughs> is that they for are real? A, yes, it it is for real. It's it's a very small. Uh, I think they've I've seen them advertised as both the Royal Liechtenstein One Ring Circus and the Royal Liechtenstein Quarter Ring Circus. It, don't um, they probably make up like seven percent of the whole country's population? <laughs> it might might be, but they. <laughs> They tour college campuses, uh, do small shows here and there, and I actually spoke to the ringmaster after their performance and got an application, got some information mailed back to me uh, along with a, a more detailed application and was very, very close to running away and joining the circus. Wow. So what stopped you? Um, Common sense? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know if they if they still have this practice now, but college was, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago or more. And at that time, as you're going through the application, one of the things is, like, we're a communal business or, or community. You have no possessions of your own. If you wish to purchase something, you have to, like, plead your case to the ringmaster. And I'm like, okay, no. Wow. No. <laughs> like, I'm I'm out. <laughs> Communism at its finest. <laughs> yes, yes, but but I was moments away from mailing that that application back and running off to join the circus. Well, we will uh, we will have to erect a Oberon <laughs> statue to you in the Justice League Embassy Garden sometime soon, dedicated to what Tim Wallace might have been. That's what yep. we'll say. <laughs> Some, somewhere there's a parallel Earth where I am a circus performer. On the Champions of Agnor <laughs> world, I think, or Angar, whatever it is. <laughs> so uh, the, talking about the communism actually makes a, a good segue. So why don't we get into the issue here, folks? We are going to be talking about Justice League number three from DC Comics, cover dated July 1987. Cover price, a whopping 75 cents. That's right, three shiny quarters. The cover is by Kevin McGuire and Al Gordon. Now... Tim? Yes, sir. 
Kevin McGuire and Al Gordon did draw this cover, but did they draw the, oh, wait a minute, other cover? Yes, they did. They did both covers. What, what, other cover? What could I possibly be talking about? They didn't start that variant cover nonsense till the 90s, did they, Tim? Actually, I believe there were two variant covers around this time. That is exactly right, folks. <laughs> DC Comics, in their infinite wisdom, decided that they needed to do some test marketing. And they tried out publishing two different versions of the same comic for the newsstands. And they had different cover art. And instead of the DC bullet in the corner, in one of the versions, it actually said Superman Comics. It was a test logo, they were seeing if maybe there was more recognition with the name Superman Comics. And it looks like, again, it was done in the newsstand, which was about 30% of the total comic distribution at that time, and had been in rapid decline. So they were trying to find out if this might be a better way. Now, they only did the two variants. They did Justice League number three, and we're going to talk about the variant cover and the the traditional cover in just a second. And the other one, I'm proud to say, was Fury of Firestorm (laughs) number 61. Firestorm keeps coming up here, don't they? Very near and dear to my heart, the nuclear man, and I am ashamed to admit that I don't have a single copy of the variant Fury Firestorm. My buddy Roy Cleary, he he sends me texts every couple months when he picks up another variant copy. He's got like 10 of these things. I don't own a single one. So sad. So sad. And for those of you who have the variant cover of Justice League, consider yourself lucky. Apparently, it was it was only in select markets, which apparently did include California. So why don't we talk about the regular cover first? In fact, why don't we do it this way? I'll describe the regular cover. We'll discuss. And then I'll let you describe the Superman cover. Is that fair? That's fair. All right. So the regular cover says, Rocket to Russia with the Justice League. And you've got a shot from up above. You're looking down at an angle at the Justice League. They're sort of huddled together, backed up almost into a corner, up against a giant fence. And on the fence, there are uh, nuclear radiation symbols on it. And surrounding them and moving in what appears to be for the attack is a ton of rocket reds. And the Justice League, they, you know, they, Batman's sort of cowering behind his cape. Uh, Blue uh, Guy Gardner's got his fists up. The rest of the league is sort of, you know, bracing for the attack. Looks like Black Canary is about to start punching some people. I love this cover. This cover, I think, is power. I think the colors are nice. It, it pops. I am in love with this cover. I, what's what's your first instinctual reaction to this cover? I think this is perfect. I absolutely think this is perfect. Although I kind of feel like Martian Manhunter is kind of standing there, just kind of looking at the Rocket Reds, like, "What are you going to do?" <laughs> he, he, seemed, he seems to be the most casually posed of that group. I think it's because he's ready to strike. Like, remember in uh, the the Batman movies, the early ones, Michael Keaton would stand there, like just stock still, but all of a sudden he'd flip up the cape and smack someone in the face. I, yes. I think he's about to just whip those arms out and go all Martian on people. I could see that. Unless those hands are under the cape fiddling with a uh, pack of Oreos. Oh, well, we haven't seen the first <laughs> Oreo yet, so we'll have to see when that happens. It's because they they're hidden under the cape. It could be, could be. <laughs> and, the, and the Rocket Reds, man, there's a ton of them. They look threatening the way they're moving in on them. The shadows of the Rocket Reds are sort of falling on the Justice League. I love Batman's pose, especially. You know, pull it. I mean, you know he's got a batarang in the other arm. And, and it, Absolutely. And he just looks like, he looks in almost a defensive pose, and yet it's, you just, you know, you never trust Batman, so. And Dr. Light's Probably, you know, it's Dr. Light always stands out because she's never in constant. Interesting. I wonder what made them make that choice to have her being plain clothes. That's a good question. Hmm. Well, I love, love, love this cover. And this is the DC comic bullet cover. So why don't you walk us through the Superman comics version? All right. Superman comics, Justice League. And you get a, a nice shot of Captain Marvel flying in to save Batman's bacon. Um, <laughs> Batman is being accosted by, by one of the Rocket Reds while they hover over a flaming nuclear power plant. As uh, Captain Marvel says, hang on, Batman, I'm coming. And uh, Batman uh, responds, forget me, Captain Marvel. You've got to save the world from nuclear destruction. (laughs) (laughs) All right. People have different opinions on word balloons on covers. I love them. 
I think they're awesome. And the cheesier the dialogue, the more dramatic the dialogue, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Nathaniel Wayne, is a, who runs a great podcast called uh, 90s Comics Retrial, he hates cover blurbs. Drives him nuts. I, I think this is, this is brilliant. I love it. I like it. It kind of takes me back to Silver Age comics. Mm. And Silver Age comics had tons of word balloons on them. That's true. That's true. And they were often cheesy, to your point. Big red cheese. <laughs> you know, it's kind of nice to see Captain Marvel get, you know, a big chunk of the cover because he doesn't, other than I think it's issue six, he doesn't really get a lot of attention on covers. You know, here he's swooping right. in the heroic. And think about it, in a different world, if Giffen and Demetrius had not lost the right to write Captain Marvel by issue six or so or seven, what a different book this would have been. If he had hung around and been a regular character, you know, up into the 20s and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, he's Superman level. You know, Absolutely. I mean, it would have really changed the whole nature of this book. This is sort of a nice what could have been cover, but I think it's gorgeous. You can find this in the back of the trade paperbacks, at least my hard copy trade paperback that I've got. Now, I think you said it's in yours as well. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. It's uh, listed back in there. Nice little piece of history. So, All right, Tim. I think it's time to get into the issue itself. You want to take us through the beginning of it? I, I certainly will. So so we have Justice League number three, Meltdown, Plot and Breakdowns by Keith Giffen, uh, script by J.M. DeMatteis. In your face, Shag. I got that one on the first try. Hey, I did put it phonetically <laughs> in the document for you. <laughs> Sorry, um, Mark. Penciler. I'm trying. <laughs> Penciler, Kevin McGuire, inker Al Gordon, letterer, Bob Lappin. Color, colorist Gene D'Angelo, editor Andy Helfer, and special thanks to Terry Austin, which kind of threw me a threw me a curveball there. You know, it's thrown me one too, and I tried to look into this. Now there is a text piece at the back of the book, just like there has been in the other two issues by editor Andy Helfer, kind of telling you the background of how the book came to be. And he does talk about Terry Austin, but he only talks about Terry Austin in relationship to the first issue. So I don't really know why Terry Austin, unless Terry Austin stepped in, maybe here to help with the inking. I don't. I don't know. I have no idea why Terry Austin got thanked. That's a good point. Maybe an uncredited inking assist. Well, but he is credited as a thank you. So as a th- as a thank you. Yeah. Hey, that, that's that's more than Rob Kelly got. Oh, well, hey, we got about four years till we can talk about that. So <laughs> hold on. Yes, uh, my podcasting life mate, Rob Kelly did in fact ink some Justice League comics in this run, which we will talk about in about three or four years. I'm sorry, I wasn't I wasn't trying to get a dig in at Rob. Rob's a nice guy. Says you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, why don't you take us through the issue, buddy? All right, so we start off with Colonel Ruman Harjavdi of Bialya uh, addressing three alien beings, the Silver Sorceress, who oddly wears gold, <laughs> um, <laughs> Wangina, and Blue Jay, who recently arrived to disarm the world's nukes. It's sort of like Superman 4, but better. <laughs> the colonel rambles on and on about how he's there to help them uh, when he's actually trying to use them to take over the world. They're only half paying attention until he suggests that they target the Soviet Union next. Blue Jay starts to protest at first. They're not anybody's slaves, but uh, Wangina agrees. And based on the map that they're looking at, the USSR is full of nukes. Meanwhile, the Justice League is hovering in Blue Beetle's bug just outside of Bialian airspace. Uh, after last issue's standoff, they're quietly waiting for exactly 9.2 hours, according to, according to Batman, to decide what to do next. But all they're really doing is getting on each other's nerves, cracking Star Trek jokes, and Shazam is trying to get everyone on the team to sing, row, row, row your boats. <laughs> 
Guy Gardner is plucking everybody's nerves, and luckily for him, just as Batman's about to deck him, Blue Beetle picks up the nuke busters on the radar, and they're on the move. So they begin pursuit, but Blue Beetle quickly slams on the air brakes. <laughs> air brakes. <laughs> Couldn't resist. That's good. Ernest. <laughs> Ernest. Uh, when they cross over into Soviet airspace, Batman orders Beetle to follow them in, but before they can work out a plan, Guy, loose cannon that he is, starts a fight with the suddenly on the scene Rocket Reds. We then cut to Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev sitting in his office. He's just ended a phone call with the mysterious Mr. Lord. But I think we all know who that is. I totally didn't catch that the first time around until I, I read your notes, and I'm like, whoa, no way! Yes. Yes, actually, just just as that scene opens, he's hanging up with Mr. Lord. Oh, you're right. I went back and looked. I was like, wow. When one of his generals walks in, a lot has happened recently. Chernobyl, Reykjavik, the Green Lanterns, and now the Rocket Reds are fighting with the Justice League while a trio of aliens threatens Russians' nuclear power. So in a surprising move, Gorbachev orders the general to cease all hostilities with the League and reroute the Rocket Reds to defend the nukes. Oof. Glasnost in action, folks. I'll take over the recap from here. So across the the Soviet Union, nuclear facilities are put on red alert. Missile bases, submarines, power plants. Unfortunately, one of the nuclear power plants attempts to shut down too quickly, and a core meltdown is now imminent. Meanwhile, over Soviet airspace, the battle between the Rocket Reds and Guy Gardner continues. The rest of the Justice League team are inside the bug, watching Guy Gardner as he escalates this international incident. Batman orders Captain Marvel to stop Guy Gardner's antics and bring him back inside the bug. Uh, the bug ship, that is. Captain Marvel's kept busy, though, defending himself. So Martian Manhunter gets the job done instead, and Guy is effectively benched back inside the bug ship. Now, even with Guy out of the picture, things do not settle down. Much of the League gets involved defending the bug ship from these rocket reds that are attacking. This includes Martian Manhunter, Captain Marvel, Mr. Miracle, Dr. Light even gets a moment in there, and Black Canary. The battle's actually, it's really exciting. It's very dynamic and very fun to read. And uh, there's some really good humorous moments in it, too. Now, there's two things worth noting that uh, I just jotted down. The first is the battle does give us, the reader, a glimpse of Blue Beetle's exit hatch that's actually underneath his sliding chair, which I think is so cool. I love that. (laughs) Oddly enough, everyone else has to go through the top hatch, but he lets Mr. (laughs) Miracle go through the hatch underneath his feet, which I would think makes it hard to steer when his chair shoots across the bug. It could, yeah. It looks awesome. Uh, and then the other thing to note in this battle is Black Canary takes out one of the Rocket Reds herself on the roof with a combination of her sonic scream and then a punch to the face. And this poor Rocket Red, Rocket Red number four, he actually loses some teeth in the process. And um, by the way, his name is Dimitri. So remember that for future <laughs> issues, folks. In a, in a couple of months, that might ring a bell. Now, with Mr. Miracle comically, he's comic, he, he finds himself in a situation where he's facing off with three Rocket Reds, and it's actually quite humorous. And it looks like he's about to get a major beatdown. And at that moment, the sol- Soviet soldiers actually stop fighting and ask the Justice League for help with their nuclear power plant that's melting down. So uh, we cut back to the nuclear power plant, and the three alien nuke busters are there. They're facing off against some of the Rocket Reds of themselves. And about this time, all the players come together. We get everyone in the same place. makes it a little easier to track everybody. The Justice League, the trio of nuke busters, the Rocket Reds are all trying to figure out how to handle the nuclear power plant and meltdown. The situation seems helpless, though, because everyone realizes that regardless of all their superpowers, none of them can stop a meltdown. So we, we get a close-up of Wanjina, and he's emotionally struggling with some situation. We're not sure what's going on. And finally he decides, you, you infer that he can't let another world be destroyed by nuclear fire, is what you're seeing. And he creates a giant whirlwind to blow everyone away to a safe distance, and then he flies headlong into the nuclear power plant, smashing through the wall, determined to shut it down himself. 
After a few nervous moments of spending time with the Justice League and, and everyone else and some tears from Silver Sorceress, Wangina does step out of the power plant and collapses to the ground. He has stopped the meltdown, but at an extreme personal cost. The Soviets take custody of Silver Sorceress, Blue Jay, and Wanjina. Now, Wanjina's recovery isn't likely. The Soviets explain that they are the best hope for helping him, because after all, after Chernobyl, unfortunately they've got a fair amount of experience with radiation poisoning. Kind of a, a sad fact to acknowledge, but it's there. Rocket Red then asks the Justice League to leave. They explain that Moscow has rescinded their permits to operate in the Soviet Union, and so the Justice League heads out. Now they're concerned about the fate of the alien nuke busters, and are concerned about, you know, and they're feeling a little bit snubbed, but they decide that that is in the best courses for them to leave, and they're wondering if they will see those alien nuke busters again, like perhaps Russia might try and use them in their superpowered arsenal. So as the League enters their mountain base back in Happy Harbor, they are shocked to be greeted by two strangers. One's a man dressed in a business suit, and the other's a person in a garish blue and gold costume. That's right, folks. This is the historic first meeting between the Justice League and Maxwell Lord. Max announces to the group, The name's Lord, Batman. Maxwell Lord. And I just thought I'd drop in your secret headquarters to introduce you to your newest member, Booster Gold. And then Booster follows up with a very confident, Hi, guys. And that is the end of the issue. Next, Gold in the Hills, which is a great name, by the way, next issue. <laughs> so, what did you think of the issue, my friend? I, I believe the line is, uh, Frenchie, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> <laughs> meaning, uh, meaning between Booster Gold or just the whole issue itself? Between, between Booster and and uh, and Beetle right there at the end. Okay. But as a whole, it's a it's a fun issue. There's great there's great moments of humor. There's there's definitely it, we're still early on. We're trying to find the balance in the team. I think that even plays into some of the humor. Captain Marvel getting a little like, really? Do I have to go save Guy again? <laughs> <laughs> like, so everybody's trying to find their work out their place, and I, I think that plays well into the story. And I think that was one of the reasons th- this particular issue and the series as a whole worked for me was it wasn't only about the heroics; it was really about those relationships, th- those friendships, those moments of humor or bickering. It was it was like they were they had just met, but they were very quickly becoming like a family. This issue really hits home the workplace comedy aspect of it. You know, yes. all the time they're trapped in the bug and getting on each other's nerves. <laughs> it's like being in a staff meeting for too long with the same people. Or yep. you go on a corporate retreat or something, and you just, by the end of the weekend, you're like, I want to kill them all. Um, <laughs> it's it's sort of that feeling. I mean, the bits with Captain Marvel, I love what, he doesn't just suggest <laughs> singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. He actually comments on how the time would have gone faster if they had followed his suggestion to right. sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat, which just <laughs> nails it perfectly. It's like the best way to deliver that line. I think one of my favorites is when Guy Garcher sees the, the Rocket Red show up. He gets like a kid in a candy store. He <laughs> yes. gets so excited. He actually has the line, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. You know, he's... While uh, wrenching his hands in, in like that sinister delight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> his eyebrow raised with a glee in his eye. Now, if you haven't read the old Just, uh, Green Lantern comics, around this time, he had pissed off the entire Soviet Union, basically, uh, and gone in there and caused a lot of problems. So for him, it's a little bit of a return to get to fight them. But they've already, even if he didn't read those, they've established in the series he's such a diehard, you know, American that he's going to love going up against Ruskies. You know, he's so excited <laughs> about it. He's made several suggestions that it'd be better if the Nukebusters just took out the, the entire Soviet Union, be better off with the country. So, 
He's he's all about Stallone too. Oh yeah, yeah he is. <laughs> there's other subtle lines in here that are funny, like when the, when the nuke busters show up at the power plant and they're facing off against the uh, the Rocket Reds. There's a great line in here that I really like, where they say, you know, understand. You know, this is the nuke busters. Understand, we mean you no harm. We have a mission, a destiny. We're here to save you from yourselves. And the Rocket Red goes, "That's very considerate of you. Take another step, and you're dead." <laughs> it just cracks me up. Just the the, the deadpan delivery of those lines. And and it's not just the but the lines with Maguire's art. Yes, yes. You you might not get that same effect if you had a different artist. I but, agree. But you go you go with Maguire's expressions, and and that really sells some of these lines. So what do you have like any favorite ones? Because I've got one or two favorite favorite art pieces. Uh, you know what? I I'm I'm. Well, I'll let you flip. I'll throw a couple out. Let me flip. Okay. On page 14, at the top of the page, it's the second panel, when Black Canary comes up to the roof of the bug, and she gets zapped, or, or, or well, the door gets zapped by one of the Rocket Reds. She is pissed. And she turns around, and it's just <laughs> one of those great classic Kevin McGuire moments where you just see a woman who's angrier in hell, but sexy at the same time. And her, her lips have that, like, sort of look. I, I love that panel of Black Canary. She just looks so badass. It's great. You know, I'll I will actually say the following page, bottom row, middle panel of uh, Mr. Miracle. Yeah. After blowing up a rocket red with the uh, afternoon, fellas, you may not believe this, but I don't want to fight with you. And it's got, he's got that like nervous, sincere look on his face. Yes, he does. He's, he's got the, oh, boy, I'm in trouble look, you know, but at the same time, like, hi, guys, let's all be friends. <laughs> I might have just blown you up, but no, no, no. It's all good. And then you get into the more emotional stuff. You know, when, when Juan Jinna sits there trying to decide what to do, he sees the power plant getting ready to go critical, and he knows that it could mean the destruction of this world. And he's balancing that, and you don't know it, but he's balancing it in the mind with the fact that he realizes he can stop this, but it's going to cost him his life. And the emotional struggle, and finally just that look of determination, and this is all on page 18. Yeah. Um, right before he goes and does what needs to be done, it's just like, wow, McGuire is just a master at conveying emotions. So Yeah, good. very much. I'm, I've been toying with this idea, and I think I'm going to go ahead and award it this time. Uh, this is a new – I don't know I don't know if I want to call it a new segment, but it's a new award that I think I'll be giving out each episode of the show. It's the O-Face Award. Um, the O-Face Award this time is going to go to Silver Sorceress on page 17. If you look on page 17 – on the middle row, left-hand panel, where the nuclear power plant st- – yeah, you found it there, didn't you? The nuclear yeah. power plant is starting to explode. Uh, her mouth is uh, open, and it's sort of shock, and her mouth is a perfect circle going, oh, it's kind of a Kevin McGuire trait. He draws women with a mouth of like, oh, and now, wait a minute. I meant O face as in her mouth makes an, an O. Were you people at home thinking something else? I I don't know what's going on there, people, but you just need to get your minds out of the gutter. I just mean her mouth makes an O. Gosh, jeez. If if you took that panel out of context and eliminated the word balloons, uh, I could I could understand someone taking that the wrong way. All right, you <laughs> filthy filthy perverts! I can't believe you people would ever think that way. Jeez, oh, he never even occurred to me. <laughs> hey, 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 Shag. Yeah. She's hot. <laughs> she totally is. <laughs> and you know what? I was reading your summary, right? Where you mentioned Silver Sorceress wears gold. I yeah. about fell over laughing so hard when I read that. I'm like, I have never thought about, well, maybe some 20 years ago I did. But since I started getting ready for the show, I never once even crossed my mind that the Silver Sorceress wears gold and not silver. It's gold with a red cape. Right. <laughs> and even in the 60s when they drew her, she was wearing gold. What is up with that? 
Yeah. Absolutely insane. <laughs> Absolutely insane. More art mentions on page 21. When uh, everything settled down, uh, Wanjin has now suffered his horrible fate, and the Soviets have rushed in with their medical equipment. Everyone's – they don't say it. This is all just in the artwork, which I love. I think the adrenaline is all worn off. You know, everyone's the, – the battle's over. They clearly had you know, enough time for the med techs to show up, so it's probably been 30 minutes, more than that, whatever. And everyone's sort of settled down. And the Justice League are standing there in the in – the, I don't know if they're in Siberia, wherever they are. They're freezing. And you see Black Canary and Blue Beetle shivering. You see the cold breath coming out of everyone's mouth. I mean, it's clearly really, really cold, and the Justice League is really, really not prepared for that with their clothes. Uh, the only one being Dr. Light, who was smart enough, apparently, to bring a parka. <laughs> And, ba- and Batman's toughing it out. Yeah, he, yeah, you're right. He, he's even flipped his cape. Everyone else has got their cape either pulled around them or, uh, like, you know, the blue, like I said, the bottom panel has Blue Beetle and Black Canary just shivering. And I, it's just, it's a really nice artistic touch. It's really well done. And they're little tiny panels too. It's not like it's really big in your face. It's really nice. Oh, I gotta mention this. There's so much to love in these comics. I'm sorry. I get so excited. I'm all over the board. When the Rocket Reds are like admiring the Russian landscape, and then they, they have to go, and one of them guys says, you know, like, God helps whoever gets in our way, and the other guy's like, Psst, hey, we're not, we're not supposed to believe in God, remember? <laughs> yes. That was a great moment. There's so much, so much good stuff. Oh, well, I was gonna jump ahead. Let's roll. Okay. Alright. Then let's talk about the house ads. I, again, I, I say this every episode, and every episode I've continued to go forward. I don't know if we're going to talk about the house ads every time or not, but there's some amazing ones in here, folks. And again, 1987 is my absolute favorite year of DC Comics. I'm going to run these out. Now, you have the trade paperback in front of you, so I don't know if you're going to remember these or not. But the first ad we're talking about is The Shadow. And this is the amazing, amazing artwork done by Bill Sienkiewicz. Um, yes. And the story was written by, oh gosh, I'm having a hard time reading the ad. The, it, it, they, really, who does purple ink with red on top of it? It's almost <laughs> impossible to read. There we go. Andy Helfer, the editor of Justice League, was the writer on The Shadow with Bill Sienkiewicz artwork. And it says, who knows what evil lurks? It doesn't even finish in the hearts of men. It's just amazing Sienkiewicz art. If, if I remember this ad correctly, because I, I bought that book and probably in part based on a, a weird interest I had in old time radio shows as a kid. Okay. Um, I, so that was part of the selling point. Then this came after the Chaken miniseries. Okay. And, and it was that moody, scratchy Sienkiewicz art. Oh, yeah. And I remember the coloring, uh, at least on the house ad, being very simple, not, not overdone. And that really kind of sold me, too. Yeah, I mean, well, you get the Shadow, who's completely all in black, for the most part. Even, like, his, you don't see any detail of him, other than some highlights of the light. And then his scarf, which is like, you know, almost like a McFarlane-level scarf, where it's just everywhere, and it's red. And so that's one of the unique features of it. It's just beautiful. I've never actually read this comic, so uh, I've always heard it's good stuff, though. I might have to go back and read it. All right, next up, next ad, we're talking about Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunters. Oh. God, it was such a great comic, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Green Arrow is another one of my favorites and, and has always been. And that whole take on the character, making him a little, a uh, little grimmer, a little grittier and, uh, ditching the boxing glove arrows. Yeah. At the time, again, because everything in my life seems to tie to something else. At the time, I was really big into, um, our local public television station ran the Robin of Sherwood. Okay. With Jason Connery. Oh. Um, Sean Connery's son. It was a, BBC production. It was beautiful. And I went from seeing 
seeing that to seeing Green Arrow suddenly looking more like the Robin Hood depicted uh, on this British TV show and going, this is awesome. I don't care about the boxing gloves arrows anymore. This is brilliant. Yeah, it's a, it was an amazing series. I remember I picked that one up in trade when it first came out, about the time the Micro series was coming out. It just absolutely blew me away because, you know, back then I was I was on my path of becoming the, the kid who liked to read the gritty heroes, you know, so it this really came up was right in my wheelhouse. Now, the ad, it's a four-panel thing. It's got a close-up of Ollie's eye, and he's holding an arrow up next to it, like a regular arrowhead, as you said. And then three little panels. One is of Black Canary being attacked, which is really disturbing, like her mouth is being covered. Um, the next yeah. panel is Ollie making love with a woman, who I assume is Black Canary, except I'm having a hard time comparing the top panel where her hair is short and the middle panel where he's making love to a blonde woman with long hair. And didn't she wear a wig anyway? I don't know. Yeah. Did Ollie cheat on her as early as that miniseries? I can't remember. It's been so many years since I read it. I'm, I'm not sure either. And then the final panel is like a big fight. Something's happening there. Anyway, it says, Today's the first day of the rest of his life. A good day to be Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters. Oh, so good. Great miniseries. Then the next one, uh, now we mentioned this ad last month, so I won't harp on it, but the Centurions Power Extreme. I love that cartoon. And this is actually for the DC comic. Also another ad for Amazing Man, same one that they ran last month as well. Then there's an ad about the DC annuals, and this one it would be Doom Patrol. And this is a Doom Patrol annual drawn and, well, written by Paul Kupperberg, but drawn by John Byrne. So you know it's going to be gorgeous. And then a Superman annual, which is written by John Byrne, but drawn by Ron Friends, and that's the Titano annual, where Titano just looks bizarre. He's huge. (laughs) He's always huge, but he just looks really strange in this one. Then there is probably my favorite ad in the whole book, which is for Who's Who Update 87. Yes. Now, I mentioned the Who's Who podcast earlier um, that we do, so I have a soft spot for Who's Who already. But this is, uh, it says Who's Who in the Who, the second Who has been scratched out. This says Who's New in the DC Universe, Update 87, and it is a, another great John Byrne piece, and you've got Booster Gold and Gold Star and Electric Warrior, of course Electric Warrior's there, the Young All-Stars and Rocket Reds and Wild Dog and the Duke of Oil and Magpie. I mean, you know, classic characters that, you know, everyone sees in media nowadays. Well, okay, maybe not so much. <laughs> Except for Booster Gold. But still, uh, lovely ad. Love that love, love, love. Now, I, you said you're a Who's Who fan. Did you read the updates as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I bought everything up. Th- I got about halfway through the Loose Leaf edition when I was collecting. And I, I still am trying to piece together some of that from the dollar bins and, and back issues. But yeah, the the original Who's Who, Update 87, Update 88, the um, <laughs> Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Got, got them all. Awesome. It's so good. So good. It really is. And the last aid ad is a half-page ad for The Outsiders, which apparently they designed this ad specifically for my friend Rob Kelly because it's a, it's all The Outsiders. They're in, like, dark, shadowy. I think it's Jim Aparo art, but it has a Bob Dylan quote. So, to live outside Ooh. the law, you must be honest. This is Bob Dylan. So... He loves himself some Dylan, that guy. Weird. No, no, not not having that in front of me. Is is that the the really cool outsiders that had Arsenal and and Nightwing and Jade and uh and the the not metamorpho? No, no, that's that's much. That's not for like twenty years from there. I was the, kidding. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. No, I just didn't get it. I'm not sharp <laughs> enough to understand the wit. So I I like the not metamorpho line. That's clever. <laughs> well, I think um. You know, I, I can't let this go. There's two more things I had to mention about the issue that just I absolutely fell in love. Uh, one's the thing I love. I'm sorry. Another one's just a general question. So what, I love Blue Beetle and Black Canary having a discussion about Russian composers <laughs> and literature 
just it was so out of the blue and yet showed their passion for other things and their level because both of them are very intelligent people yes i just love that little bit you know of course then he freaks out he's like what am i doing we should be worried about you know soviets and the next thing actually ties into that which is all right here's what i don't get they were able to sit there, you know, on standby outside. I need your help. How do you say this word? Bialin? By, 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 Bialia. Bialia. Thank you. They sat there for 9.2 hours outside of Bialia airspace because they wouldn't violate, you know, that issue. However, when it comes to the Soviets, <laughs> who is in literally in the middle of a cold war with the United States of America, the country they're from, they don't even hesitate. <laughs> To cross that border. What? Yeah, that, that kind of threw me too. And, and Batman's all about like, go. Right? <laughs> but apparently not by Ellen, by uh, that other country. <laughs> nuts. Absolutely nuts. All right. Well, that we're going to close out the issue there. Now we're going to move on to the next segment, a little segment we'd like to call Character Spotlight. And in this segment, folks, the guest will walk us through how one of the characters that's in this issue and sort of how that character fits in with the JLI or maybe some of their history before, some interesting information about that character in relationship to the JLI. And Tim, since you're here, we thought the most logical character for you to cover would be Silver Sorceress. Okay. Uh, but instead, we're going to ask you to talk about Blue Beetle. Oh, man. I had a whole a whole thing planned to talk about how she wore gold and uh, and a red and a red cape and uh, <laughs> a weird a weird headdress. Um, I'm telling you, if you're into furries, that that headdress <laughs> is a, is going to be a favorite. <laughs> All right. So Blue Beetle, huh? At this point, when this issue is taking place, Ted Cord has been in the DCU for, uh, I guess, a little over a year, almost maybe two years. He started showing up in Crisis in March of 86. Which, or is, at the, least which the, is the first place I ever saw him, by the way. Yeah. Well, for a lot of people, I think that was the case. Charlton, I guess, wasn't known for quality in their production. Not That's not what the, I hear. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I'd never even heard of the character till that point. Well, he shows up in Crisis first, out of Crisis Secret Origins number two, uh, which was May of 86, cover dated. And then one month later, started the Len Wein Paris Cullen series. So he'd been around since early 1986. Legends was 86, 87. Mm-hmm. And then Justice League number one uh, hit in May of 87. But the odd thing to me, obviously, I, I run the Blue Beetle blog. I, I'm familiar with the character. And the Justice League isn't referenced until about issue 20. Jeez. So, so at this point, I mean, we're we're at issue fourteen mm-hmm. for for Blue Beetle, and there's another six issues before we get a mention or an appearance of of the Justice League characters. You know, if they're, um, throwing, if they're throwing the New Teen Titans in there to try and, I would assume, boost sales is what the Titans were used for. Right. You would think they would use every opportunity to put the league in there too. Right, right, but no, uh, he, he's encountered the Titans, he's had a multi-issue arc with the Question, he's locked horns with Kronos, he's had two issues that were Legends tie-ins. It's not until issue 20, which is actually a Millennium tie-in. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the first time you get any kind of crossover with, with the League, which I thought was really weird. Because hmm. here we're three issues in of him being a, a major player, and <laughs> there's still another six issues before you get that, that crossover, which, I, I mean, I guess... I guess I, to some degree I might understand, uh, you know, the the Batman books and the Superman books don't always reference, you know, their adventures with the with the Justice League. But you would you would, to your point, think that if you're throwing in the Teen Titans to try to boost sales, 
throw in the big book. Yeah, Firestorm, by his fourth issue, they had the Justice League appear. So, yeah. Now, yeah, rub, rub it in, Shag. No problem, buddy. I, I'm all over <laughs> it. Now, it's, it's also worth mentioning that, you know, by, like this issue is a perfect example. Earlier in this podcast history, I think it was in the first episode, Ryan Daly described Blue Beetle in the early issues of Justice League as equivalent of Wash in Firefly. He's the pilot who makes pithy comments. And this issue, that sort of holds true. You yes. Know? He doesn't even get in the action this time, which is sort of, did he get in, he, did, he didn't get any action in issue one either, did he? I don't think so. Has he, he hasn't been in a fight yet in this comic <laughs> series, I don't think. Now I think about it. Issue one, he had to monitor the bug while they attacked the UN. Issue two, I don't remember if Blue Beetle did anything. We'll have to go back and check that out. But it's, it's about time Ted gets out of there and starts beating up some people. Yeah. He's got the skills. He, with a Z. <laughs> so I got a question. I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. Now, okay. the, te- the Ted Cord character of Blue Beetle. Now, as you mentioned, he's from Charlton. When, when was he actually created? Um, 1966 started appearing in uh, Captain Adam as a backup feature. Really? Okay. Now, yeah. I, I know Ditko was involved. What's like? Who was the writer? Who was the artist? I, well, obviously Ditko was the artist, but did he create the character? Ditko, Ditko was the yes creator, and uh, Gary Friedrich uh, worked on the scripting based on Ditko's ideas. Okay, so this was really, truly is a Ditko creation then. Okay. Yes. Very. Which you know really makes a lot of sense because I mentioned at the top of the show just the the comparison between Spider Man and Blue Beetle is just awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I've heard I've heard that before. That's one of those things I kind of want to go back and dig into a little bit more. But I think I think the idea was that he had started working on Spider-Man at Marvel, and uh, when he left, was trying to uh, sort of build on the same popularity, mm-hmm. and hence we get another insect. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question was a little different, but yes, absolutely true. So, all right, anything further on Blue Beetle before we move on to the next segment? No, let's move on. All right, folks, it is time for the coveted. Wahaha Award. This is the part of the show where we nominate what we think is the funniest moment in the issue. Both Tim and I have selected a moment in the series, uh, that, or the issue I should say, that we thought was hilarious. And we're going to share and we're going to decide who's going home with the coveted Wahaha Award. Tim, what you got, buddy? All right. I'm going with page four. We have we have the bug, uh, Blue Beetle at the controls of the bug, picking up the nuke busters on the radar, and Batman asks, can you follow them, but from enough distance so we're not noticed? And Blue Beetle responds, sure can, and Batman hits him with, okay then, Mr. Sulu, warp seven. <laughs> and the, the beauty of it is they set that joke up earlier when Blue Beetle referred to Batman as Mr. Spock. Yes. All yes. right. So that's the moment. That's what I think is the bwahaha moment. I like how they keep it going, too, where, like, you know, Beetle goes, Hey, everybody, Batman made it funny. Batman made it funny. It's like, don't, don't push, push your, your luck. <laughs> don't push your luck, Beetle. Sorry, Bats. That's a good one. That's a very good one. My favorite moment of the issue also fits. It's actually, uh, it's the next page, truthfully. So they, they do that moment where they fly away, and Blue Beetle realizes they're about to enter Soviet space, and there's this gorgeous panel takes up the top third of the page of the Blue Beetle bug, literally screeching to a halt in the air. And right beneath that, everyone just goes flying, and they fall all over each other. In fact, Guy Gardner apparently you know, very carefully threw himself all over Black Canary, which is pretty funny, <laughs> too. But just the Beetle screeching to a halt, I find that hysterical. So. It's it's the Ernest Saves Christmas uh, air brakes moment. Okay, you referenced that earlier. Honestly, <laughs> you, I, ha- I haven't you've seen never that seen one. You've never seen Ernest Saves Christmas? Well, to be fair, I tried to this year. Uh, this past Christmas, I put it on with my kids, right? I've got two kids. They're uh, 16 and, and 10. And we sat down to watch it, and 
and we put it on, and I'm like, kids, you know, you love stupid fart humor kind of stuff, you know, the the real baseline humor. I like, you're gonna love this. It's a classic. I put it on. Within ten minutes, my ten year old looks at me, and goes, "Daddy, this is stupid. You need to turn this off." <laughs> so we didn't even finish it. So, so I, I'm sure everyone else at home is going, "Oh yeah." And considering this is an '80s podcast, I mean, how perfect to do an Ernest type thing, you know, fits in just well. Ernest is flying in Santa Claus's sleigh, and it's out of control, and the reindeer are, are going crazy, and he has no idea what to do. And suddenly they're careening straight towards the ground, about to smash, and Ernest pulls back on the reins, and they stop midair, just a few feet above the ground. And Ernest turns to the camera and delivers the <laughs> air brakes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Well, that makes this scene even funnier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. It, it, I guess I'd give it to you. Oh, see, I was going to give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do? How do we decide this one? Is do, do they both win? Or I mean, I think yours took a lot more effort. There's a, there's a setup in the beginning, and then there's the payoff, and Batman does not deliver jokes very often. I'm still tempted to go. Now, Batman did win win one recently from us as well. So Ooh. I don't know. You, you're the guest. I'm going to let you make the call. In, in the memory of Ernest P. Worrell. <laughs> <laughs> and and the late great Jim Varney, I will give this to you. The, All right. The, the air break moment is it's a great visual gag. It really is. So, folks, you heard it there. The Bwahaha Award is in fact uh, bestowed upon the air breaks inside Blue Beetle's bug ship. So, congratulations, <laughs> bug ship. I hope you enjoy your Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. So. Wear it with pride, my friend. Wear it with pride. Wear it on the hall. Oh, you know, they could paint it on the side, like you know when oh, they could, like ships paint when they shoot down an enemy. They could do that. You could paint a bwahaha on the side. <laughs> and I think the bwahaha started with Blue Beetle anyway, didn't it? Yes. And it's uh, not until issue eight we're going to see that. That's when it all comes together. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, this is the sad part of the show where we have to say farewell to our guests as security escorts Tim out, uh, never to be letting back in the embassy again. Tim, no. I want to say thank you so much for being here. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs? They can find me, obviously, at Cord Industries, my Blue Beetle blog. So that's cordindustries.blogspot.com. Um, you can follow links on that page to uh, the Phantom Skull Cave, also at blogspot.com, and my occasional con- contributions to the Legion of Super Bloggers. And you're also on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Google Pluses. And I'm on the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Google Pluses. Put in uh, Cord Industries in any one of them, and uh, you're bound to find me. Awesome. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. Again, if, you, if you've taken any pens or pencils or anything with the JLI logo on, I'm going to have to ask you to just leave it here on the desk. Let's not make this awkward as you're escorted out. Oh, um, th- thank, thank you, Shag, for finally making my dreams come true. <laughs> I don't want to ask a follow-up on that. I just want to leave that be. <laughs> okay. Folks, as we say goodbye to Tim, please hang on. We're going to do another podcast promo, and when we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. 
Besides our podcast proper, the Fanhole soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. And we're back. Now, folks, if you want to see some panels and pages from the issue we just covered, be sure to head out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. That's the website for our entire network. And if you go up to shows, you'll find a link for Justice League International, blah, ha, ha, podcast. And there you'll see two posts for issue number three. One has the links and the MP3 file and where to find Tim and us and all that stuff. The other one's going to be called a gallery post. And that post is going to have the panels and pages you're looking for so you can see some of the stuff that we were talking about. Now, if you need more JLI in your life, and really, let's face it, who doesn't? There's a couple of more podcasts on the Fire and Water Podcast Network that might interest you. There's the Who's Who Podcast, hosted by myself and my podcasting life mate, Mr. Rob Kelly, where we're going through the entirety of the Who's Who series. Now, we're finishing up Update 88 right now, and um, there's lots of JLI in there, so you can check that one out. There's also in the back episodes, you know, there's going to be lots of characters, you know, Martian Manhunter's going to be in there, Batman, everyone, so it's worth checking out if you're into the JLI or if you just like old DC Comics. Another one we're checking out on the same network is our Secret Origins podcast, hosted by Ryan Daly. Ryan has been covering the entire series, but of specific interest to the JLI people, issues number 33, 34, and 35 were JLI-specific issues, which featured a number of origins of the JLI characters, and uh, they're really a great listen. So be sure to check those out. All right, folks, now it's time for your listener feedback from Justice League International Podcast, episode number two, in a segment I just had to call... Justice Log. And yes, I stole that name from the letter column of the Justice League International Comic Book. Now, if you want to participate and be featured in the Justice Log section of the show, be sure to either leave us a comment on the website that I just mentioned a moment ago, or up on social media. There's a couple different ways you can do it. You can go to our Facebook page, you can go to our Twitter account and, and tag us there. You can find us under JLI Podcast on both of those, or you can use the hashtag FWPodcasts. That's with an S at the end. That's the Fire and Water Podcast Network hashtag. We'll find that. And uh, the idea is, it, the more you tag us and stuff like that, it's, we want to build a community of online Justice League International fans. We want to build it around the show, people that interact with each other, talk about the comics, talk about what they like, what they miss, what they don't like, criticisms, argue with me, tell me why Tim and I are wrong. I mean, I mean it's, Tim's probably wrong, probably not me. But either way, just it's an opportunity for all of us fans to come together. All right, folks, now it's time for the iTunes reviews. If you haven't left a review on iTunes for the JLI podcast, please consider it. It does help raise the profile of the show. It helps people find the show more when they're searching on iTunes under Justice League. Honestly, it'll help build the community. And here's a bonus for you. If you write an iTunes review, I'll read the whole thing on the show during the Justice Log section like I'm about to do. And it's going to sound like I'm patting myself on the back left and right here, but these are reviews for the podcast. So, you know, maybe I'm patting myself on the back a little bit. But either way, it gives you a chance for I'll read the whole thing because later on, once I get past iTunes reviews, I'm going to have to sort of cherry pick my comments, what I what I read on the show. All right, first, Upstage. That's what they go by. Good name. They wrote, expertly executed in a fun podcast series. One of my new favorites. Glad you're liking it, man. Heard from our buddy Jose Rivera. He says, the JLI holds a special place in my heart, and you'd be surprised how often people dismiss or degrade this incarnation of the Justice League. Shag cuts through all the BS about what others have said and shares his joy of the JLI with this wonderful podcast. He and a guest host go issue by issue and share everything that's amazing and fun about this run of comics. If you like the JLI, have a passing interest in DC Comics from the 80s, or just love listening to people talk about something that they love, then by all means give this podcast a listen. Heard from Trig 3 who wrote, Tired of Dark and Grim Heroes? This podcast is for you. 
a wonderful podcast highlighting one of the greatest runs of Justice League. Join the irredeemable Shag and his guests as they dive into Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis' run on Justice League. Grab your old copies and, and Oreos <laughs> and prepare to blah ha ha Heard from Darren and Ruth Sutherland, who do several podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Oof, that's a bit of a tongue twister. They wrote... The Irredeemable Shag has embarked on a five-year mission to cover the Giffen de Mateus era of the JLI, boldly podcasting where no man has podcasted before. I, for one, hope he isn't canceled three years out like the Star Trek analogy I'm running with here. Being he has a proven track record of being involved in great shows, and he's going to be aided by a different co-host each episode, which will keep it fresh, I'm confident he'll accomplish his mission. Each episode has great segments, like character spotlights and listener feedback, and there'll be fun detours along the way as he plans to cover JLI-related appearances and other comics and media, in addition to the core books. He put a lot of thought into how to make this highly entertaining and has a rabid fervor for the source material. I look forward to exploring this era and I couldn't ask for a better captain. Aw, well thank you, Sutherland. That's very, very kind of you. And uh, now I don't know that it's fair to say that no one has boldly gone this way before, because I'm sure someone has podcasted about the JLI before, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's it for the iTunes reviews, folks. Everything from here on out is going to be either comments on our website, emails, social media, or whatever, and I'm going to have to cherry-pick my comments, because I compile all the feedback that I find out on the internet from y'all about the show or about the JLI. And this sucker right now is, uh, I think I was 15 pages this time out. So I can't read all of it and get through this and keep you guys still awake. So I'm going to be cherry picking bits. So here we go. All right. We're going to start with Sean Dearden. Sean, I hope I'm not mispronouncing your last name. There's a good chance I am. I'm terrible at pronouncing things. Anyway, Sean left some comments. Uh, here's some of me. He goes, growing up, even though Batman was my favorite superhero, I tended to be more of a Marvel guy. I accidentally stumbled across this era of the Justice League on two separate occasions. The first being in the pages of The Weird. I had no idea who Dr. Fate, Captain Adam, Guy Gardner, and Blue Beetle were, but I loved it. The first actual issue of Justice League that I bought was issue number 38. And the only reason I did was because I read through all of my Marvel comics while on vacation visiting my dad. He brought me to his job at the Nassau Airport in the Bahamas, and I went down to the newspaper stand and paid over cover price for it, but I loved it. I went on to buy some back issues and discovered Justice League Europe, and have loved them ever since. Awesome. I love hearing from new Justice League fans. Heard from Mark Adams from the Mark's Mess podcast. He says, Justice League International was my gateway to DC. I was a Marvel man. And there's only so many fake universes I can hold into my head. Then he goes on to say, the humor of this era of Justice League is epic. It reminds me of the classic British sitcoms that you could have an instant connection with fellow fans through little things such as Bwahaha, One Punch, or Oreos, which I had never tasted before reading about them in this comic. Look at that. This comic book led this man to, re- to eating Oreos. That If that isn't a life-changing event, I don't know what is. Heard from Joe X. A uh, couple of his comments here. He's, uh, in the last episode, I was talking with Michael Bailey, and he made a joke about, you know, you're stuck on the phone with Al. And he said it was from an Ambush Bug comic. I didn't remember the reference. So Joe goes on to uh, explain. He says, evidently, Al Gordon, was, uh, who was the inker on Ambush Bug and some of these Justice League comics, he goes, Al was known for making phone calls that Given could never end for whatever reason. There we go. Look at that. Now I get it. Then he goes on to say, Woodenhofer, which is the name of Maxwell Lord's secretary, Woodenhofer also calls back to Miss Tessmacher from the Superman movie. Just imagine Gene Hackman's uh, Lex Luthor screaming, Miss Woodenhofer! I can totally hear that. Heard from Mark Baker Wright. He followed up on some comments about the comparison of Blue Beetle and Green Hornet. He said, perhaps you're already aware, but aside from whatever other, other influences may have been in play, the Green Hornet was also a modernization of the Lone Ranger by the same creators, and Britt Reed, the Hornet's alter ego, was thought to be the grandnephew of the Lone Ranger. Hmm, I had no idea. Heard from our buddy Jeff Nettleton, who tends to write 
long dissertations um, on every episode of any podcast I do. And boy, he outdid himself this time. So thank you for that, Jeff. I uh, needed something to get me through a 15-hour plane ride. <clears throat> he goes on to say, I've always pronounced Wand Jenna. I don't know why. It just seems proper. Then again, I was in the Dark Seed camp. I also go with Bialya. Now, I, I'll give you, I think you're right, Jeff. I think you're right on Bialya. But Dark Seed? Dark Seed? Really? You could just watch the Super Friends cartoon where they said Dark Side. Just ridiculous. You're just embarrassing yourself here. Anyway, Jeff goes on to say, 1987 was a tremendous year. Speaking as someone who started reading comics around 1970, 1971, this was an amazing time. There were great books before that, sometimes several at once, but there were so many great titles, not just at DC, but also in the independents. I really wasn't reading much Marvel in this period, but Dark Horse was expanding with intriguing titles like The American, Trekker, The Mark, and Black Cross, joining Dark Horse Presents and Concrete. First comics and Eclipse were going strong. Then we heard from Jose Rivera. I mentioned him in the iTunes section, but he goes on a little later with some comments of this show and says, Not sure if you guys have seen this, but many years ago, a guy named Chris Notarile, boy, I'm sure I said that wrong, anyway, did a couple of fan films with Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, and Maximal Lord. The first one was Booster and Beetle doing an anti-smoking PSA with Chris playing Ted. The other is Blue Beetle and Max doing an Advil commercial done shortly after Infinite Crisis, and it had a great ending. You should check those out on YouTube. They're pretty cute. I watched them. Uh, Then he goes on to say, and while it's totally clear that Max Willard looks a lot like Sam Neill from Omen 3, uh, I've always had another visual marker for Max in my brain when thinking about people in the 1980s who could have played him. Peter Gabriel in the video Shock the Monkey. So check that out on YouTube, folks, and you'll see what Jose means. Uh, I could see what he's talking about. Peter Gabriel, I, I forgot when he looked that young and had such short hair, but he uh, he could have passed for a decent Maxwell Lord. And then uh, on Twitter, Jose made some comments about how our recommendation on the last episode, uh, or one of the previous episodes, to pick up Justice League 3000, he was talking about how great it was, and JMD Mateus actually joined the conversation. He said, glad you're enjoying it. Hope you followed the story through uh, 3001 and the upcoming conclusion. Hmm, how awesome is that? Then we heard from Paul Hicks. Now, folks, here's an interesting thing I'm going to start adding to the feedback. Paul Hicks is from our Australian embassy. So if you're an international listener, please be sure to tell me what country you're from um, so that we can announce that what embassy you're with. Again, Paul Hicks from our Australian embassy. He's also part of a podcast called Waiting for Doom. says, just to chime in on the Aussie pronunciation of Juan Jinnah, I've mostly heard it said Juan Jinnah. Pretty weird appropriating an Australian indigenous term for a comic. I would agree. Heard from our buddy Sphinx Magoo, who I think was a character in a Harvey comic. He goes on to say Wanjina in my head canon, because Wanjina is a name for an Australian Aboriginal rain spirits. I've always associated his bald head and heavy brow with Peter Garrett, the lead singer of the band Midnight Oil. That cracked me up. Because if you remember the Beds Are Burning video with, with Midnight Oil, and the, that's perfect. That's hysterical. And then Paul Hicks from Australia chimed in and says, good call. Plus, Peter was always angry about those nukes, too. Heard from Drew Bear. He says, uh, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Wangina based on absolutely nothing aside from that's how I've always pronounced it in my head. So it just can't be wrong. <laughs> heard from our buddy. Well, I use that term loosely. Heard from that guy I know, Ryan Daly, from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He runs his own show, Secret Origins, Power of Fishnets, Give Me Those Star Wars, and he was on episode one of this very show. He says, as uncomfortable as it makes you, I'm pretty sure Wanjina is pronounced with a long I sound, like I, like an eyeball. Also, like the German name Wagner, where the W uh, should be pronounced like a V. Now, folks, I'm going to let you write that down on a sheet of paper and pronounce this uh, character's name as Ryan suggested, and I think you'll get the joke he's going for. Thanks for that, Ryan. 
Reverend Chris Franklin, also from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Supermates Podcast and the Power uh, Records Podcast. He says, Michael Berryman is the actor you guys were thinking of for Juan Jenna. He was in Weird Science, but is perhaps best known for the original version of The Hills Have Eyes, directed by Wes Craven. That is exactly who we were thinking of, Chris. Thank you so much. Then he goes on to say, I had no idea the Heroes of Angor had appeared before. They had no Who's Who entry. How could they have existed? Where were the footnotes? I hadn't gone back to reread those issues, but shouldn't Batman and Black Canary recognize them? Do they? Well, Chris, I think this is a case of pre-crisis and post-crisis, but Ryan Daly does chime in. says, Black Canary wasn't in that issue with the Heroes of Agnor appeared. That was back when having more than one woman on the Justice League of America was illegal, and Zatanna appeared in this one. <laughs> Heard from my uh, podcasting life mate, Rob Kelly. Also, again, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He also does the Aquaman Shrine blog. He's with me on the Aquaman and Firestorm podcast and the Who's Who podcast. And on his own, he does the Film and Water podcast and the Pod Dylan podcast. Yeah, as I said last month, this guy just sits in front of a microphone all day long. I don't think he does anything else. I don't think he even gets outside and gets fresh air. He's probably really pasty. Anyway, he goes on to call me and Michael Bailey the Woodward and Bernstein of comic podcasting <laughs> for last episode. Thank you for that. Then he says, I have that issue of the JLA where the alternate Avengers first appear. Mike Friedrich, who was the writer, loved putting oddball thoughts into the heads of the JLAers, like when he had Batman fall in love-ish with Black Canary. Those were some weird-ass stories. <laughs> uh, Rob is a JLA expert, actually. He ran a JLA blog for a long time. Heard from Siskoid, who's in our Canadian embassy. He's also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does a podcast dedicated to the awesome crossover Invasion. It's called First Strike Invasion. He does a podcast based on Mar Marvel's Handbook of the Marvel Universe. It's called Oh Hotmoo or Not Podcast, which is hilarious. And he does the Lonely Hearts Romance po Comics Podcast. And also on his own, he does a, a blog called Siskoid's Blog of Geekery. Anyway, he chimes in on the coloring, because I talked a lot about the flat versus uh, sort of fancy coloring last time. And he says, I personally don't have anything against the coloring. Actually, I miss flat colors in my superhero comics. Fancy-ass coloring looks terrible when it's done badly, and even when it's done well. It's probably one of the reasons comics are so often late nowadays. It's like every book is a vanity project, and I don't think it necessarily adds all that much, and even detracts when the line art is of high quality and, and uh, in the case with McGuire and his inkers. Fair point. We heard from Martin Gray, who does a blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl, and Martin is at our Scottish embassy. Look at all these international listeners. This is awesome. So Martin chimes in. He goes, I like the cover of this issue, probably more for the lovely blue background than anything else. That was the issue, uh, the cover Mike and I talked about where the our Justice League members were getting zapped by the three the heroes of Angor. <laughs> Mike had the brilliant idea that they're in the throes of death metal, which is great. Martin goes on to say, he goes, I'm with Siskoid. Flat color tones make me happy. And he talks more about that. Then he goes on to say, am I the only person who really likes the logo used in the books for the first few issues? The replacement logo from JLI number 7 was so much less totes adorbs. <laughs> I don't think they had a hip lingo like that in Scotland there. Oh, well. And he goes, why have we never been treated to a Justice League Universal? Not even for a miniseries. You know, that's a good question. You know, we've had every kind of country. Uh, we've had, you know, Europe. We've had International. We've had United. Uh, quarterlies. I, we've never had Justice League Universal. It just seems like that would be a great, maybe, crossover with Legion or something. I don't know. You might be onto something there, Martin. Heard from our friend Rift. He, uh, he gave us a lot of congratulations in the episode. Thank you for that. And he goes, your show has got me wanting to pick up the trades and read along. Rift, you absolutely should. The trades are lovely. I own all the issues, but the trades are really the way to go. They're so enjoyable, especially the digital ones. I love it. Her for Andrew Leyland, who's in our English embassy. He also does a number of podcasts, including the Palace of Glittering Delights, uh, Hey Kids Comics, Listen to the Prophets, which is a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast, and Keep Them Flying, a Firefly podcast. All of those can be found on the Two True Freaks podcast network. And he says, just listen to episode number one. Damn you, Shag. I don't have time to go back and reread all this stuff, and you're making me want to. Knock it off. Then he did a couple more messages uh, throughout the... 
his reading, and I, I was promoting that this episode was about to come out, and he goes, sorry, mate, couldn't wait for you. I blitzed the first seven issues, and I'm about to read the annual. You should think about making this a daily show. <laughs> Andrew, as much as I wish I could, I think that would kill me. Heard from Jimmy McGlinchey, who's over in our Irish embassy. He gives some very nice things to say about the show, and then he goes on to say, kudos to Bob Lappin for being able to fit in all that dialogue in the panel while not obscuring Kev McGuire's facial expressions. That's a great point, Jimmy. I really like that. Then he goes on, I'm, this is this is a bit long, but stick with me here. He writes, it's interesting to see so many people commenting on how much they love the humor in the JLI series, yet it's frustrating that so many humor comics do not, on a whole, sell well. I love the humor Giffen put into series like Doom Patrol, Ambush Bug, Vexed, his version of the Suicide Squad. By the way, his version of Suicide Squad was so good. Anyway, and the Metal Men, and then even in the New 52 series, Larflees and Omac. Yet these series had relatively short runs before they were canceled. I wonder, when the focus of the series is solely humor, that people do not give it a chance. That humor is so subjective that it's hard to make uh, a universally funny series. JLI, while being predominantly remembered as a funny comic, intermixed it with solid superheroes, great characterization, and some emotional gut punches, such as the Despero storyline, or when Beetle was brainwashed. I guess you need that mixture that made JLI more than just a funny book to sell it to a wider comic book market. You know, you pose a great question, Jimmy. I mean, why don't humor books sell well, and yet why did this one sell well? It's, I think you're right. I think it's the intermixture. I mean, it's, it's also the outstanding artwork, you know, cleverly paced. It's not just jokes. It is super heroics. So I, I think, and maybe, you know, and maybe it just came along at the right time. Maybe that has something to do with it, too. I'm not sure. But it's certainly, they, they really captured lightning in a bottle with JLI. They really, really did. Heard from Suntaran, who's over in our Denmark embassy. He points out that we have, <laughs> we have managed to get listeners from at least three-sevenths of the continents with North America, Europe, and Australia. That's awesome. Hopefully we'll pick up somebody from Antarctica soon. Crossing my fingers. Heard from Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics blog. And he says, I can't wait to see when Silver Sorceress and Blue Jay join the Justice League Europe. Only four more years to go. <laughs> You're a very patient man, Clinton. I'm impressed. Heard from our buddy Diablo Frank. Now, if you don't know Diablo Frank, he's sort of famous in the worlds of podcast feedback. He's like that angry fan that you used to run into on the uh, DC Comics message boards back in the like the late 1990s. And it, someone never took away his keyboard. Anyway, Frank also does a number of podcasts, uh, all part of the Rolled Spine Podcast Network, which include things like Marvel Superheroes, uh, podcasts on Martian Manhunter, The Atom, Wonder Woman, Bloodlines, uh, independent comic books. He also does a zillion blogs. Anyway, he wrote, based after Michael Bailey had described his screaming nightmares about nuclear proliferation. Uh, Frank wrote, My own nuclear anxieties were never as pronounced as Michael Bailey's, but I do think they inform my lifelong expectation that I'm part of the last generation that will live a desirable lifespan on this earth. It's part of why I never had kids and why I'm resigned to the ecological doom that I expect will swallow up most of civilization within a century or so of my demise. Well, thanks, Frank. Appreciate that little ray of sunshine into our lives. Heard from Tim Price, who wrote a number of comments, but here's just some bits and pieces. He says, I bought every issue of JLI as it hit the stands, and I still love it. I reread this entire series more than any other in my collection. Now, I made some comments during the previous show saying, I wonder what people were, th- you know, thought as the issues were coming out, because I, I read these early ones in hindsight, so I wonder what people thought, like, you know, of Maxwell Lord, and what did they think of these other things. So, he's actually responding to what people thought as they're buying it off the shelf. He said, regarding Maxwell Lord, it was pretty obvious that he had an ulterior or selfish motive for the Justice League International, but never seemed to be the typical super villain situation. Since I also was reading Booster Gold, he fit pretty neatly into the 80s Reaganauts <laughs> trying to make a buck, although something more was in the works. Oh, and about the Mr. Gold reference? Yeah, on the, on my first read, it had to be Booster. Anyone else would have been a letdown. 
A little later, he says, and this is a great question. Was it ever explained how Mr. Miracle joined the Justice League between Legends and Justice League issue number one? He wasn't in the Legends miniseries, and Oberon's comments explained why they joined, but not how. I've always wanted to know what bridged the gap, especially since none of the team is surprised to see Scott or Oberon in the cave and asking, so who invited you? You know, Tim, that's a fantastic question. I don't know the answer to it off the top of my head. I wonder if anyone else knows. At what point did we did we ever see Mr. Miracle and Oberon get invited to join this incarnation of the Justice League? Hmm. I wonder if it's out there. Very interesting. That's me sort of cueing you people at home to fill in and respond and let me know the answers because you people are much smarter than I. Heard from Josh Lowe, who wrote tons uh, about the podcast. Tons of backstory info I never knew. And Juan Jenna, silliest moniker ever. It might be, Josh. It might be. Heard from Michael Diaz, who wrote Poor Silver Sorceress. Kind of a crummy way to die. I guess Michael's been reading ahead. Then we heard from our buddy's Saturday Detention Podcast, who's also from our Australian embassy. Be sure to tell Paul hi when you pass him in the hallway. Uh, he was working on a project with uh, 3D printing. You know, you buy, you buy these 3D printers. He was printing a nightlight for his kids. And it says, who will keep them safe? The Bwahaha Justice League. And let me tell you guys, this is the coolest nightlight I've ever seen. It's just a big sheet of white plastic. But the engraving in such a way, so when you backlit it, it is the cover to Justice League International Number 1 as a nightlight. All done in one color, but with the lighting, it works. It was amazing. Then heard from Dallas Gibson, who said he uh, they found and downloaded our podcast before work, and they can't wait to read along. They love this series. Awesome, Dallas. Welcome to the group. Heard from Robert McDonald. He says, you're influencing me to get the trades. All by design, I'm sure. Absolutely, Robert. I wish I could lie and say I get some sort of kickback when you guys buy the Justice League International trades. I certainly don't. But please go out and buy them. Support the, the creators, because every time you buy one of their trades, that company will order more. It's going to help support the industry and support the Justice League book and prove to DC that we want to continue to buy them, whether it's a digital or physical copy. Heard from Richard Field. He says, just want to say, awesome podcast, and I'm enjoying the new trip down memory lane. He points out that he was a strict Marvel zombie at the time, and uh, he's loving these DC coverage. Heard from our buddy Daniel Butnick, who says, uh, do you want to feel good about yourself all day long? Then listen to the Justice League podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Heard from Dennis Perkins. Uh, I just like the way he wrote this. <laughs> he put this up on Twitter. He says, now listening to the inaugural Justice League International podcast, because shut up, it's my life. I like that. Well done, sir. Heard from John M. Wilson, who does the Avengers Inspiration Podcast. He was curious, before listening to the episode, if we were going to catch in the letters page where they misspelled Mark Wade. They spelled it W-A-D-E. Sure enough, John, by now you know that Michael Bailey did catch that because he's got a crazy eagle eye, that boy. Heard from Jared Alberich. He says that the podcast got him through another 5K in the Alabama sun. Ooh, Jared, my goodness. Now, being that I live in Florida myself, I know just how punishing that sun can be in, in the southeast. Ooh, well done, sir. Well done. Here from Matthew Thomas Cody, he says, I regret not sending in letters to be printed in the Justice Log section of the letters page of the comic. Because, but being in your Justice Log podcast portion is validation. Well, Matthew, you've done it again. Well done. <laughs> then we heard from Michelle Fief, who's an accomplished comics professional. He wrote in a piece on his blog talking about his very first back issue purchase was Justice League number one. So he put it out there. It's, it's Zegas, which is Z-E-G-A-S dot Tumblr dot com. Go back to January 28th. It's a really nice piece about how Justice League International was his gateway into back issues. So, great. We, lo we love that. Thank you for sharing that, Michelle. Heard from Dan Schwab. He says, already making my Bwahaha predictions for episode number three. Well, Dan, I'm really curious if you picked the same Bwahaha moment we did. Heard from our buddy Luke Dobb. He just picked up Justice League International trades one through four from in-stock trades. That's awesome. I'm so glad you did that, Luke. I predict lots and lots of laughs in your future, sir. 
Here from our buddy Ange, who does the Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary. He uh, he just found a copy of issue number two in a dollar box, which eh, I'm sort of torn. One, that's sort of like a crime that it's in a dollar box. It's so good. But then at the same time, you know what? If it's at an affordable price point, that means more people are going to read it. So that makes me happy. So I'm conflicted. Heard from our buddy Buck Roulette. He is listening to episode number two. Just started and it's already off the rails. Yeah, me and Michael Bailey, we, we tend to go at each other pretty fast. Uh, heard from my buddy, David Gutierrez. He says, nice job, Shaggy Michael. There's one note about the McGuire volume of Modern Masters. The art is beautiful, and it's, while it's insightful, it's a very dry read. Huh. All right. Our thanks to Mike Peacock, who gave us a nice shout-out. He is putting together the Justice's First Dawn podcast. That's a new podcast dedicated to the classic Justice League era. He's going to be jumping around covering a lot of, like, satellite area and pre-crisis and early days and stuff like that. And uh, anyway, he gave us a nice shout-out on his page, talking about this podcast. Thank you for that, Mike. Then we heard from Roger Pree, because it sucks this podcast is only monthly. We need more JLI. I agree, Roger. We do need more JLI, but I can't handle more than monthly. Sorry, buddy. Now, just want to send out a special thank you to a few folks who promoted us on their own website. Thank you for this. The Splitting Atoms blog, which is splittingatomsblog.wordpress.com, which is a Captain Adam blog run by our buddy FKA Jason. Thank you. The Cord Industries blog, which is cordindustries.blogspot.com, which is, of course, Tim's blog, the guy who was on this episode. Then marksmesspodcast.blogspot.com. And finally, boosterific.com, which is a Booster Gold website. Thank you, all of y'all, for mentioning our podcast on your website. Really, really appreciate that. Next up, these are folks that have shared our podcast podcast, promoted our podcast, whether it be through a retweet or a share or whatever, on their own social media timeline. So this is Facebook and Twitter. And folks, I'm as I said last month, I'm about to read a long list of names. And I realize that that may not be the most interesting thing to listen to. However, these folks showed their support, promoted the show, took their time to. So I think it's important to recognize these individuals because they may not get mentioned at any other point, and yet they're still part of our JLI community. So here we go, folks. Big thank yous to Aaron Anderson, Al Girding, Al Sedano, Professor Alan Middleton, Andrew in Belfast, Ange, Between the Pages, Bill Beer, Brian Yardley, Buck Rollette, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Dale Russell, Dallas Gibson, Daniel Butnick, Danilin88, Danny Dowell, David Ace Gutierrez, DC in the 80s, Decca Black, Dennis Perkins, Derek Crabb, Dread, Film and Water Podcast, FKA Jason, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Head Speaks, Paul Hicks, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Jonathan Brown, Jose Rivera, Keith G. Baker, Con L, Corden Industries, Lucas Yap, Louise Mayorgas, Mario at Luther Lang, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matthew Thomas Cody, Michael Bailey, Mike Peacock, Mikey Flash, Mo Walker, Paul Riches, Pod Dillon, Randy Caldwell, Raven, Richard Field, Rift, Rob Kelly, Robert Lewis, Roger Preeb, Ryan Daly, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, S.O. Gallifrey, Steve T-Shirt Meter, Sin, The Aquaman Shrine, The Hammer Podcast, The Ogre Lord, Trace Man, Two True Freaks, Ultron is My Elvis, Vishnu Ganon, Waiting for Doom, Warlord Worlds, and Willie Yarbrough. My thanks to all of y'all for your support of the JLI podcast. Oof, folks, not just them, but everybody who's been involved in the show. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show. And this community of JLI fans that we're building together is fantastic. All right, now, please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. You can find us any number of places out on the interwebs. Facebook, you know, we've got a Facebook page, Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast, or it's just facebook.com slash JLI Podcast. Up on Twitter, use the at symbol JLI Podcast. You can send us an email at jlipodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website I mentioned earlier, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI Podcast. And that is probably the best place to leave your comments. Um, the last episode had some 40-something comments, and there's a lot of nerd fighting there. 
there and discussions and back and forth. It's, it's a very friendly, welcoming place, but it's also a great place for discussion. So I would definitely check that out. And my thanks again to Michael Bailey for appearing on last episode of the show that we talked about in the feedback. And my thanks to Mr. Tim Wallace for joining us for this episode. Please be sure to check out their own online efforts. Now, you're going to want to come back next month when we cover Justice League number four. You know, we had that cliffhanger with Booster Gold. Will he join the team? Won't he join the team? The only way you're going to find out is if you come back next month. We'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me, folks. Who will it be? Sorry, you're going to have to wait a month to find out. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag, and this has been the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? traditional ways to celebrate Christmas with songs, with gifts, with family and friends. There's a new way. Ho, 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 Bert. With Ernest. <laughs> Ernest P. Worrell. He's back. Know what I mean? Back to save Santa. Santa's in the slammer. Look at those beady, twinkling eyes. Back to save Christmas. Back to save face. Your dead meat. That's life for you. Isn't she a doll? Ernest <laughs> T. Worrell. Mr. Fungi. In the mission they said couldn't be done. On Comet. On Cupid. On Donder. In the movie they said shouldn't be done. Sophie, Ruffy, a, a blister. <laughs> you guys say you have a problem with reindeer? <laughs> Trim the tree. Light the candle. Deck the hall. And hit the deck, because Ernest P. Oral's coming to town. And he's coming with colorful cards and festively wrapped packages. Air brakes. <laughs> Ernest saves Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>